the one true God. Prepare our hearts to worship you, the ever faithful, ever true. Forgive our sin and make us new. Prepare our hearts to worship you. Yeah. 
Uh, hi, I'm Stephen Pierce. I'm one of the members here, and I just wanted to welcome everybody to Faith Family Fellowship this morning, uh, especially if you are a visitor. And I wanted to take a moment to show you this. This is a connection card. You will find one in the uh, seat behind or in front of you. Uh, so if you're a visitor, if you could fill that out for us, we would really appreciate it. Just give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better. And you can place that in that offering basket at the back of the uh, auditorium. Uh, we've got a couple of announcements for you. The pictures are still going on for the church directory. So if you're a member with us here at Faith Family Fellowship, uh, those pictures are being taken in the room 106. That's on the back side of this wall over here. If you haven't signed up, you can still go, right? Still go see Maddie, okay? So there's still time, even if you didn't dress up and look all nice like my family. We didn't. So we're going to sign up. I mean, we're going to go get our pictures anyway. So you get what you get. Uh, lunch, fellowship with the Sullivans. That's this coming Sunday, November the 6th, in the gym after the worship services. Um, and so please join us for that. I was trying to see if there was any other note on that. Oh, that's also breakfast Sunday, so we're going to discontinue breakfast Sunday because we're having the lunch. We don't need to overindulge, guys, all right? So uh, how can you get involved? There's a couple of different ways. So there's some Christmas opportunities coming up. Uh, fostering Together Gulf Coast, you can provide some products. Uh, they will go in a basket um, filled with laundry items. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can get with Daisy. Yeah, Daisy can answer some questions on that. Uh, products can be placed in the designated baskets in the uh, worship center foyer, okay? Uh, Operation Christmas Child is also coming up. Uh, our shoebox dedication is going to be on Sunday, November the 13th. And are this is on the slides? That's helpful. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> and if you need more information about what goes in the box, please visit Samaritan's Purse website for more information. Uh, there's also the Baptist Global Relief, another way you can get involved. Um, it's a joint ministry between the International Mission Board uh, and the North American Mission Board, and you can help fund uh, practical solutions to poverty um, while sharing uh, the hope for Jesus, um, hope of Jesus, excuse me. Um, all right, and then choir sign up. So if uh, we're still doing that, it's a, if you're interested in choir, this is a chance to let us know that you're interested, so uh, please sign up. I think that's in the back uh, in the foyer as well, so if you're interested, please do that. Um, all right, so that brings us to our memory verse, and this is such an amazing verse that we've been reciting together, and it is so important. There's so much truth in this voice, uh, in this verse, excuse me, um, that the Lord our God is one, right? That is, there's one God that we serve, okay? Um, and that we should love our God uh, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, um, our strength. Uh, this is actually the verse that's quoted by Jesus when he's challenged by the Pharisees uh, to give what is, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? And he says, it's this. And he goes a little bit a step further and he's like, well, they didn't ask for two, but he gave gave two, right? He said it, it's, it's likened to it, love thy neighbor as thyself. So uh, let's recite this together, okay? Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you. So thankful, Lord God, that we can come into your house and worship you today. Um, God, we are thankful for the grace that you have given us, mercy, many ways that you have blessed us, blessed this church. Uh, Lord God, we are moving into a new season, new pastor. Lord, we just, we pray for your guidance, your wisdom. We want to seek you, Lord, every, every day. Got to lift up Matthew as he brings the word. Got to pray that you give him peace. Lord, give our hearts understanding. Help us to seek you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in worship. Let's stand. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone, what is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong, who holds our days within His hands. What comes apart from His command, and what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. And oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope and life and Truth can calm the troubled soul. God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trials. Is the waves that bring the sky unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope and life. the grave, what will we see? Christ, He lives, Christ, He lives, and what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him, and we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed. 
sing hallelujah now and ever we confess christ our hope and life and death
else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him Father? Who is it, church? Only a holy relationship with you. God, thank you that you sent your son, Lord, to be the sacrifice that we need so that we might be called children. God, I pray that, Lord, you prepare our hearts Father, as we come to a time of reading word, of a time of preaching, of teaching, Lord, a time for us to receive your word, God. I pray that you prepare our hearts to receive it. Lord, I pray that you prepare Pastor Matthew's heart to preach. And Lord, that it will be you speaking through him. Father, thank you for this time. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> so to continue to preparation of our hearts, that's the Lord's work. Uh, let us prepare our minds for continued worship this morning. This morning's passage, we're going to read in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. So open up your copy of God's word. Let him speak to your heart and to your mind as we read. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and behold himself aloof during the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the rest that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, let us reflect on on your grace. Lord, justification not by works, but through faith in Christ. Lord, let us... Grant us repentance towards you, Lord, and continued growth and faith in Christ Jesus and what he continues to do in our life and what you continue to do through our life through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, stay where you're at. We're in Galatians 2. We're going to look at one verse uh, today and focus on 2.16. And so this... uh, is the 30th of October, tomorrow's the 31st, Halloween. It is a, a time of uh, a religious holiday back in the day, no longer is, but uh, is a very ancient holiday uh, that looks forward to the 1st of November uh, that in the Roman Catholic calendar, calendar is All Saints Day. And so uh, this is the season and the time that we remember uh, in, in our own Protestant calendar, the Reformation, and recall the works and events of nearly 500 years ago of how the Lord brought change into the gathering of the church on earth uh, through a variety of people, but specifically one German monk, Martin Luther. And so just uh, by way of synopsis, a little history about Martin Luther 1517 is the year that is remembered as the beginning of the Reformation. And so Luther is a, uh, a, he was trained to be a lawyer. He was born into a miner's household. Father put him through school to be a lawyer and had a experience on the road in a storm, kind of like last night. And uh, he made a, uh, a quick Uh, commitment in that storm that if he survived, he would become a monk. And he survived, and he kept his commitment and joined the Augustinian order, uh, which is unique in that they are not a kind of cloister order at this time, in that they go off into a mountain, they live in a room, and nobody sees them. Uh, But they were active, one of the expectations, they were active in their community. They taught, they pastored, 
they uh, well, I guess they were they were a priest and and they they were active within the lives of people and taught the word, taught the scripture, and so. Luther, as he uh, goes back to school, becomes a, um, an expert in the scriptures and theology and begins teaching. As he's teaching the scriptures, as he's teaching through the Psalms, teaching through Romans, teaching through Galatians, he comes to understand what God has done in Christ. Specifically, as he wrestled with his whole life, whether he truly was forgiven whether the things he did, the acts of penance, whether his acts of worship, of, of fasting and contrition, whether it actually forgave him of his sins, he never had an answer. He was plagued by his own sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. So much so that he got a reputation uh, as he was required in his religious duty to go uh, to give a... Um, to ask for forgiveness, what's that called? Go in a booth and to a priest. Confession, there we go, thank you. To go confession, and uh, he got a reputation of sometimes being in there two, three hours confessing uh, sins daily. And so uh, the priest, uh, great, great example of the, um, the evil and the immorality. There were, there were a few times that the, his leading priest would tell him, go, come back when you've actually sinned. Go away, Luther, and come back when you've actually sinned and confessed. And so he was plagued just by illustration, plagued with uh, his own guilt and his own position before a holy God. And so as he is looking at Scripture, specifically going through Romans and Galatians, God opens the reality of the gospel, the good news, why it's called good news, and that is the justification by Christ alone, through faith, the imputed righteousness that Christ shares to the one who comes to him in faith. And that Luther understood that according to Romans 1, 16 and 17, that it is in the gospel, it is the righteousness of God that is given from faith to faith. It's not God's righteousness there that he's talking about his his righteousness according to the law, that God holds us to the law and that he is righteous over us. But he's saying that the good news of the gospel in that verse specifically, that it is that God's righteousness in Christ he gives to those who come to him in faith. So that we do not stand before God on our own merits, but if we have been born again by the grace of Christ, trusted in him, it is the merits of Christ. His righteousness that's applied to the Christian, the sinner. And so Luther, at this time, he, he comes to understand this. And then in 1517, I got off track, sorry. Um, such a great story and uh, so much detail in there. I'm old, I'm, anyways, so Luther, 1517, there was, there was a situation happening. The Pope was building uh, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican in Rome. And if you've ever seen it or seen pictures of it, it's immaculate, and immaculates cost money. And so the Pope has run out of money. And so there, the way he collected money, he had a bishop who wanted another place. He wanted a, another bishopric. And so he said, Pope, I'll give you some money if you give me this, this area and this place of responsibility. And so through simony, uh, he 
sells that, and this bishop has a guy named Tetzel, uh, John Johann Tetzel, uh, who decides, you know what, I know how to raise this money, I'll take care of it. And so he goes around and begins selling indulgences, and so within, within their view of, of receiving grace from God, penance is one of them. Penance is an aspect in, a, in that theology of the day of how we receive grace from Christ, and part of that can be paying for it, of, of giving, donating, paying penance to the church. And so Tetzel thought, you know, this practice is there, let me extend it a bit. Let me extend it a bit and say that if you come by this indulgence, then the merit of the saints will be extended to you or whoever you wish, past, present, and future. So it's all done with. And so what, would, what eventually occurred was that Tetzel was going around and, and telling the peasants that, hey, your loved one who's suffering, if you simply give some money and buy this piece of paper that the Pope has stamped, that they'll be out of purgatory. They'll be out of suffering. And they'll go into paradise. And so give the church your money. Give by this indulgence. And so that was going on in Luther as a, as a leader, as one who is teaching people, who is involved in the church, his local church in Wittenberg in Germany, he sees this happening and he cannot remain silent. And so he takes uh, 95 theses or 95 points of argument to solicit a debate with religious, with other, with the Pope specifically, but leadership of scripturally, theologically, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this and taking advantage of the people, taking advantage of the impoverished peasants and taking what they had, promising that they're, they're, they'll be all right and their family will be all right? And so Luther, as he does this, he, uh, he comes at odds with the Pope, and uh, it culminates in his life to an excommunication and eventually the sentence of death being put upon him. Yet the Lord uses him, uses Martin Luther, uses his, uh, his teaching, uses his stand here in this one time at, at 1517 and on throughout his life in order to bring about a refreshment of God's word, an understanding of truth, and an understanding of the gospel that had been lost, that had been lost for generations before uh, recovering this. And so the Lord used him to reform the church. And there are several theological distinctives of the Reformation. And I just want to look at one this morning through this one verse in Galatians 2 of justification by faith. This key and crucial theological thing, reality we see in Scripture that the Lord used in Luther's life to bring about his conversion. And it's essential for us to understand and it's something that we can forget because it's something that occurs outside of us. In other words, justification by faith is where we come to Christ by faith that he applies the grace of God upon us and that we are, we are decreed and said to be right before God in heaven for eternity all time that the merit of Christ is laid upon us that we stand before God right and righteous, not because of us, not because we deserve, earned, merited, obeyed, but because of God's goodness. And so it's something that, 
that we can easily forget and something that we can easily fall into a moralism, a religious observance by doing this, God will be happier with me. If I obey, if I stop saying this, if I stop taking this, if I stop going here or doing this, God will be happy with me. And that is a misunderstanding of justification. That if we are in Christ, we are new, and he looks upon us as right. Not that we don't have problems, but that for eternity, God will see us as right because of Christ and because what he has done on our behalf. And so that's, that's what we are going to look at uh, this, this morning at, um, at justification. So let's get the context. We, we read uh, the half of chapter 2 kind of to try to help with the context of Galatians. Because Galatians is it's a big, it's not a huge letter, but it's a large one with some complex themes in it. And I want us to understand as we're looking at one verse that it draws from everything around it. And it's important to see and understand that one verse uh, within the verses around it. And so we see that as Paul, he's writing to the Galatians. And in the first chapter, he talks about them rebuking them. Why have you left the gospel? Why have you you've turned away from the gospel and turned to other things as if there is another gospel? There is not another gospel like Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. He is only one, and he has produced and brought about salvation in one manner. There is not multiple ways. There is only one gospel. There is only one work of redemption. And that's what Paul is saying to them. You've left it and added other things, and you've missed what God has actually done. And so then we have Peter as an example here. As he goes and Peter comes up to Antioch where Paul is and Peter is in the habit of going down to Earl's house and eating bacon in the mornings and having breakfast and eating with the Gentiles and uh, enjoying what is not kosher. More than likely that's what it is. It's not explicit what it is, um, but I'm, I'm saying it's bacon and he was eating bacon and having have a good old breakfast and he's in this habit. Because, if you recall in Acts, as God reveals to Peter uh, before he goes uh, to Cornelius that, that there is not, that as the ladder comes down in heaven, or the, the sheet comes down with all the, all the animals, that God has not made unclean things. That by Christ and what he has done, he is cleansed. And the law, as we're going to see, is not purposed in a merit system, but it's purposed in pointing us to what Christ has done. And in that time in the Old Testament, pointing us towards Jesus and what he would do, and what he would do in fulfillment of all the law. And so we have Peter, who's eating bacon, and Jewish folks show up who, are, who hold to the law and hold to a structure of life according to that. And Peter says, I, I Sorry, guys, I'm, I'm going to step away from this because I don't want to offend these other folks. And he's leading people astray in, in an adherence to a moralism over and above what the gospel means. And so Peter, Paul, Paul speaks up to him and uh, says to him that this example of what he's doing, he's wrong. That as he's shown favoritism to the Jews who are coming up, the legal value upon Jewish moralism that he is leading astray Gentile Christians who don't live according to 
that law, who don't live according to those, those practices. And so in Peter's hypocrisy, as he's leading those astray, Paul rebukes him as not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so remember, God did not make a mistake in the law. That in this, he's not saying the law is empty and to be jettisoned and that God made a mistake and that Jesus came to fix it. Recall in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is saying, it has been told to you, you have heard, but I say. As he is reinterpreting not what the law said and how it was, pro- how it was interpreted, he was reinterpreting what the people had said about it. And so Jesus, as he is, he has come to, to give us the right understanding of God's intention in the law that the people, after the Mosaic law had been given, had said, you know what, let's not break it, so we're going to build fences around it of extra rules and extra instructions. We can only walk this far. You can't touch this or that, and you can't be around this or that person for this long. And they built all these rules and fences in order to not break God's laws, and these corrupted and skewed the intention of the law. And so as Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount gives us a hint there that God's law is not a system of human moralism in order to satisfy God. In other words, we, we don't look at God's law and say, I can do this, this, and this, and God will be happy with me without any change of who we are. That I can merit and earn the forgiveness of God completely and totally. And so we have here, as Paul is addressing this from Peter and addressing this to the Galatians, he says this in verse 16, chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he says here, we know, yet we know, and this this term for knowledge is complete. We have unquestioning confidence that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That by no, no person, not any person, there is not a human that is justified by the works of the law. That it is complete, it is completely known without a doubt. And so he says that first, in, in dealing with this, as he addresses Peter, that what Peter, these works of the law, what Peter is doing is taking God's law and applying it to satisfaction of God. I've said that. I'm repeating myself. So Peter, um, as he's doing this, this life according to the Mosaic law to satisfy God's demand, that we can look at it and take a competing perspective within God's law and grace. And I've heard it read into it. I've, I've done it a time or two, and I'll encourage you not to read into this verse a competition between law and grace. That we have a that we have a a reformation, so to speak, of the law in the New Testament, and so God came and fixed it by sending Jesus. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say, I hope so. That we have Deuteronomy six, one God, 
who has produced one way for salvation, and he's given us one scripture, one message. And so perhaps the purpose of the law is different than what it was understood to be by what Peter was understanding it to be. Jesus not, did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to remove it. He did not come to do away with it. He did not come to supersede it, to say it doesn't matter. Jesus came to fulfill the law. If we go to Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus came in complete congruence and agreement with the Scripture. He came completely in line with what God has inspired and said. Jesus came fulfilling and completing what the law intends to do. In that the law never was given for the purpose of making us right before God, of fixing our problem of sin. Its intention was never that. God gave the law intentionally to point us to Christ and what he would do. The law sums up all people under the same curse, the same need of grace and need of forgiveness. It teaches us what sin is, and it helps us to understand and recognize it. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law was given to direct us. It was given to stop everybody, that we all would be held accountable to God, that we could not complain and whine and self-justify about how I didn't know this was wrong, whatever, this, this has never been seen, and so I'm fine, I have a license here. But we were all held accountable to the standard of God that we all have sin and see that, that then the world in being held to the count, it would be clear that the works of the law, no one is justified before God. No one is made right before God by doing what it says completely and fully. Because as he later makes clear in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That in looking at the world and looking at what God has inspired and said, if we approach it from a merit standpoint, what I can do, what I can earn, what I can add up, what can I can build up, well, what we build up and what we earn is death, is sin, because we have sinned, we have fallen, we have decided and disobeyed the Lord. Thus, if we try to counteract it and undo it, we will never we never will be able to. We never can dig ourselves out of the hole, so to speak. We can never forgive. We can never get out of our sin that we then would merit God's forgiveness because it is only in Christ. The law pointed to him. And so I'm indebted for this illustration to John Piper and uh, want to mention this because I think it's such a beautiful picture of the purpose of the law. And that if we look at the law as railroad tracks and we look at it as, uh, as tracks that direct to a place, so you, you hop on those tracks and you're going in a direction. So the purpose of the law 
was that this, this railroad track would direct you to Christ. Go right on through the Old Testament, look forward to Jesus, beginning a time, and we have Jesus show up, that the law is intended to point us to him, to bring us to a place of exasperation and desperation, that we cannot fulfill it. We can't obey. Not only is it in our hearts, but actively, outwardly, we can't do it, and that is to exasperate us and point us back to God to ask, what, what do we do? What hope do we have, Lord? What, how, can, how can we be forgiven? How can these wrongs be fixed? And it's intended to drive us forward to Christ. Yet what we see with Peter and what we see with what the Jews did with the Old Testament is they took this railroad track and they propped it up. And they stuck it on a cloud or something. And, and they, they used it as a ladder. As a ladder to climb up to God and said, this, which was down here, we're going we're gonna to pick it up and we're going to climb it and make our way up to righteousness. We are going to fix it. And the law is not a ladder. It was never intended to be a ladder for us to climb our way out of sin and corruption. It was meant to direct us to Christ and to get us there to see the curse of sin and the curse of what has occurred in our lives that we would not look to the law as a satisfaction for our sin, but we would look to Christ as the one who would provide the legal satisfaction for sin. So, let's look at a few things. There are a few things in this verse to answer. What is justification? What is the word justification? We just answered works of the law. That what is the worst of the law? He's referring to that, that human system, that ladder of using God's law to do what it was not intended to do, to prop one up and to, in a self-religious uh, standpoint, earn one's way to God, a Tower of Babel type situation. And so to be justified, what does it mean? What does the term justified mean here in Galatians 2.16? person is not justified by the works of the law. And this term is passive, entailing it's something that occurs to someone. It's something that happens. And an interesting point from history is that with, with Luther, uh, to, to look at kind of how he unpacked and understood this, that the copy of the scriptures that was available was the Latin copy of scriptures. And within the Latin for this word, it means that justified is to make one righteous, to make one just. And so the way that was interpreted in that word was that you would do certain things, you would do certain grace-bearing things in order to be made righteous, which gives a little more flesh to the indulgences and what was going on is that the understanding was you would do certain things that God would actively then apply grace to you and you would be progressively made right before him. And then the change occurred as Luther was going to school reading specifically the scripture in Greek where he came to see that the word for justification is not the same in Latin. In that the Greek word specifically is a declaration. It is to declare, to pronounce one righteous. Not a progressive merit, not a progressive application, but an immediate one-time declaration and proclamation that this person is right, is justified, is righteous before God. It is a 
proclamation that this is true. It's a legal verdict that one is guiltless. And so if, if we look at Luther as he, he comes to see this, the righteousness, the, the justification uh, of, of the, the sinner by faith in Christ, that it is not merit, it is what Jesus has done, applied on behalf, that this, this became recognized as imputed righteousness. That righteousness is, the righteousness of Christ is placed upon and transferred on the sinner. So that the great transfer, that the, the sinfulness of the sinner is taken legally off and put upon Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is transferred and imputed and laid upon the sinful person. So that what makes one right in Christ, how, they are, how we are justified, is not what we do, but what Christ has done for us and what he applies to us. And so lastly, the term here to make more sense of this verse, faith in Christ. What is biblical faith? What does it mean to trust in Christ? Is it just knowledge, just data, just information? Is faith just what we know? Or is it just assent, just a mental assent, just saying, yeah, I agree with that, it sounds good, sounds right, we're good, I'm good with that. Or is it more? And biblically, it's more than that. All these things are involved. You have to agree that what Scripture teaches is true is true, and then you have to assent mentally that you agree with this and it makes sense you understand to some degree, but biblical faith is more than that. It's a full, complete, it's a willing dependence on the promise of another person, specifically that the object of faith, that the person is trustworthy and you're depending upon that person. So that faith in Christ is based on the faithfulness of the one trusted, not upon the truster, not upon the one who has the faith. So that biblical faith, to have faith in Christ, is a decision based on, on knowledge, evidence, belief, all those things. But it is also an active stance of, of repentance, of walking in trusting that Christ, what he has said and who he is and what he has done, that it is real and that he is real and what he has done is for you. It is taking that a step. It is agreeing not only mentally but by the, by the stance of your life, the faith and trust that you trust in him, that what he has said, what he has done is true. And so, a person is not justified by the works of the law, by a manner of living according to the law, but by faith in Christ. And continue on, comma, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, Paul throws himself and Peter in here and says, hey, we have believed this also. That Paul and Peter were peculiar in that they were, they were Jewish people who adhered to the law, lived by the works of the law, and came to a place where they recognized who Jesus was, and Jesus called them to saving faith in him, and their lives were changed and transformed. That by faith, by, by trusting in Christ and repenting of sin, that they were transformed, that they would count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, of being found right in Christ, of trusting fully in what he has done and not what 
they have done. And so Paul is saying, we have done this too. We have believed in Christ. We have trusted in Him. We don't hold on to a law, a rule, uh, any, any own merits, anything that we have done, but we trust fully in Him. We have believed into Christ. And so to go back to the Reformation, uh, that the, the, the church, the Roman church, after Luther, after the, the beginning of the Reformation, in about 1530 to 1550, they gathered people together to counter the Reformational uh, statements and teachings. And one of them was justification by faith. They, they viewed it as antinomian, which means against the law, without the law. And so they understood that justification by faith is a rejection of the law and then a living licentiously, just however you want to live without any structure, without any direction. And that's, that's the way they interpreted justification by faith. And that is not what justification by faith is. That's why I tried to make the point a little while ago that we don't have a repair in the new covenant by Christ. He is not fixing something broken in the sense that the law, its purpose, does direct us, does help us, does structure our lives, does give us encouragement, does, does teach us what we should do and to identify sin, but specifically the point is not to live fully by it, to, to be right before God by obedience to the law, but to recognize that it is Christ who obeyed. He obeyed the law fully and completely. Remember, last week we looked at the temptation of Christ. As he, is, he is in the wilderness for 40 days, no food, no water. Satan comes, the tempter comes, and he has suffered, he is hungry, and he is tempted by the enemy. And he does not fail, he does not cave, he does not succumb to temptation, but he is faithful. He is faithful in his obedience. That, that is one aspect that all of us would fail if we were in the same circumstance. He did not. He was faithful to the law. He obeyed every bit of it. He is right and righteous. And so the law points us to the righteous one, to the one who has fulfilled, who has obeyed, that he is enough, that Christ has fulfilled every bit of it. Christ was perfect. He is perfect. He fulfills those legal expectations that we fail to fulfill. If you remember Romans 6, talks about not sinning so that grace may abound, that it is foolishness to read the grace of Christ as a license to do whatever you want to do, that it is not understanding why God must have grace. He must have grace because we cannot earn it. We don't deserve it a bit. We don't solicit God to forgive us. He, by his love and his compassion and his goodness, comes to free us from sin, to free us from the curse of death. And that is only accomplished by the perfect life of Christ that he legally fulfilled every bit of the law that we failed to fulfill. So the law, not a ladder, its purpose is not to justify, but to point us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the standard. We can't attain to God's standard. We can compare how good we are to others, 
and we can feel better about ourselves, but the standard we're, we're going to be held to is God's standard. Christ fulfilled it. We have not. So the real sacrifice of Christ, the real righteousness of him in justification is shared to the sinner. The sinner who comes to him in faith, the very real righteousness that he deserves that is his is shared and put upon the sinner. That's justification. That you are pronounced right by faith in him. That his very real righteousness is imputed upon you. That it is actual and real and passed to the believer. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why it's good. It is good because we, des- we don't deserve it. We don't deserve a bit of it. And yet he, in his kindness and in his love and his goodness, has stepped into what we deserve and he has taken it for us. And he has shared what the Son deserves rightly to those who do not. So that then we must cast ourselves upon his promise Trust in his completed work. Philippians 3, 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so as Paul, he's saying here that he wishes to be found, to be known, that he has jettisoned everything that is not of Christ in order that he would be found not having his own righteousness, not being right before God in his own merits, but to cling and trust upon what Christ has done that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith in him. That Christ shares this righteousness. He declares it to the sinner who trusts in him. So this good news that the curse is paid for in Christ that those who come to him in faith, who trust in him, that what he has accomplished, that he shares that righteousness on our behalf. If we point further in Galatians, if we go to Galatians 3, some beautiful verses here. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law, the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So it's evident, we see it, we know it, we know it's true, we see it in Scripture. As it says in Habakkuk, for the righteous shall live by faith, verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ has redeemed us by becoming a curse. The law in our sin is a curse upon us. We cannot climb our way out. We can't fix it. We can't even recognize it, barring God revealing it to us. And yet Jesus came to be a curse, to undo our curse, that anyone who would come to him by faith would be saved, 
would be forgiven, that curse would be removed, would be undone by his grace and by his goodness and by the value and the merit of his life would be laid and applied onto that sinful, cursed person. So that you would be declared and deemed right forever, not because you earn it, not because you continue to, not because you never mess up again, not because you ever fail again and ever sin and you're completely obedient all of your life, but because of Christ, because of what he has done, because he has come as a curse to undo the curse, that then the grace, the blessing of faith might be extended to all. Jew and Gentile alike, that anyone who would call upon the name of Christ would be saved. So faith is that complete turning away from sin and self to turning to Christ, to trust in what he has done, that you stand before God right, not on what you have done, not on you doing things right, but in what he has accomplished. And that that, that faith that justification that occurs once then produces what the Spirit comes to bring about new life. That then we, we see language of being born again. That talks about as the Spirit comes and applies the grace upon the justified sinner. That transforms your life, makes you alive to God, enlivens, fills your soul in that forgiveness of sin. And Luther, as he is sitting and reading and translating Romans, as he approaches 117, he says in in, uh, his sermons through that, that it says, if God opens, heaven comes to him and opens his eyes and, and invites him in as he recognizes that God does not look upon us expecting a righteousness that, that we will fail to abide by, but he looks upon us if we are in Christ by the righteousness of Christ. It was as if heaven opened to him and he was welcomed in and that he was regenerated there. Is that your experience? Do you have a similar experience where, where Christ has justified you, where his work you have trusted in him and he has brought you to life? It's experiential, so it's, it's going to look differently and so you don't have to to the exact that what Luther has done, what his experience was. My experience was sitting at my desk right before I started high school. And I'm reading, I have no idea what I was reading, but it was as if the reality of my inability to satisfy God, my inability to obey the law was open to me. It was made vividly clear that I could not do it. So my prayer was that, Lord, I can't. I can't do it. I need you. I need your help. I need you to save me. That was it. It was really simple. But it was God who was calling me to trust in him, recognizing that I desperately have to trust in him. It is not my work. It is not what I can do. It is not what we can earn. It is not propping the law up as a ladder to climb up, but it is listening to what God has said and then what he has done in his son Jesus on behalf of the world that would come to trust in him. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you know that you have been justified by his grace? And if you have, you cannot make it any better. 
God has given you favor because of Christ. Things may be tough. You may walk through a wilderness of suffering like Jesus did. It won't be the same because you're not Jesus. But you may walk through suffering and you will. But that is from God's goodness and is for a purpose in order to grow and mature and to display his goodness in further, uh, in further great quantities and also that he would make you a more faithful steward of what he has given you. So if you've been justified by him, rejoice in the finished work. And it's not something you're going to improve upon. And it's not something, if you think that, you are, you are Peter and are not seeing it rightly. And listen to Paul. Listen to what the scripture says. And return to the grace that you've received. Remind yourself of what he says and what he has done in your life. And rejoice in his finished work. Rejoice that what he has done is sufficient to carry you home. To carry you through. Have you turned from all manner of self-righteousness to a living faith relationship with Christ? And is that evident by fruit? Is that evident as Galatians continues to get to the fruit of the Spirit, displaying that God is at work within us, that God is at work there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Is it evident? I probably forgot one. I always forget one. Is it evident? Is, is the Spirit at work within you? Is it there? Are you depending upon Him? Are you seeing God at work in your life? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that there is salvation in no one else but Christ. There is given under heaven and earth no way that we can be saved but by Him. And I thank you, Lord. You've not given us a multifaceted direction to go but a simple clear railroad direction but there is only one way and it is christ and in him alone so father help us to trust fully in your son god would you reveal to us lord if there is if there are some here who do not know you would you reveal what you have done for them and draw them to faith in you Draw them to faith in your son, that they would fully trust in him, that they would turn away from any semblance of self and sin. They would repent of that and turn fully to trust in Christ, that what he has done would be effective and laid upon their account. That you would forever look upon them as right because of Christ and because of him and what he has done on their behalf. God, would you draw draw those to you. God, would you remind us of your goodness, of your grace, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord Jesus. It is only through you that we can come to know the Father. We thank you and ask, God, you would be with us, direct us, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So.